take your Bibles and turn with me uh, to Psalm 119. One more time, Lord willing. Psalm 119. And I'd like for us to begin with a word of prayer as we seek gracious help of God in examining His Word. Father, again, we are delighted with the privilege of opening our Bibles. We have the truth of Your Word before us. And while it is a cause worthy of rejoicing, it is also a very serious one. And so I pray that we would take it seriously, not take it lightly, not something to be uh, flippant about or dismissive of or careless, but help us to realize that as we handle your word, we have an obligation. We are obligated to read it, to understand it to the best of our ability, and to live according to it, to trust it, to believe it by faith. I pray that as we do this morning, that you will work in our hearts and accomplish that which we can't do ourselves. And so I pray for your grace this morning to use your word by the power of your spirit to change us, make us what you want us to be, conform us to the image of Christ. I pray that you would help me as I speak, Lord, to be your mouthpiece. I pray that my heart would be available to you, not shrouded, but be open that you might speak through me and use me according to your will. And we'll thank you for all that you will do because you've promised that your word always accomplishes the goal that you have sent it to do. And we trust in that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We began our study of Psalm 119 back on January 12th, and when we did that, we noted some of the similarities between this very lengthy psalm and the first psalm of the Psalter. Both psalms teach that there are two ways to live, God's way and man's way, or we could call it the way of righteousness. Uh, or, or rather, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Or we could speak of the way of truth and the way of deceit. There are probably many other comparisons that we could make between the two Psalms. Now, I want you to notice this morning, though, as we think about Psalm 119, and as we really are going to come to the end of the Psalm today, that there is a, a progression throughout Psalm 119. And, and really, Psalm 119 is a difficult Psalm to study simply because it is so long that, at least I find, that it's impossible for me to keep it all in my head at one time. And as I begin to read it, I begin to lose the earlier parts the further I get into it, and it's harder to kind of hold it together and get one kind of overview, big picture of it. And yet I think there is a a sense of progress that is made through the psalm. If you, if you will, think about how the psalm begins. Back in verse 9, right in the very early part of the psalm, we have this question, how can a young man cleanse his way? And so the psalm begins kind of by introducing the perspective of youth, 
right? How does someone who is just starting out in life, just starting out their Christian life, how do they maintain a right walk before God? How do they follow the path? And so we could talk to the young people who are here this morning and say, you're young, you've got your whole life ahead of you. You're looking at, at you know, Lord willing, decades of life and opportunities and choices. And it's an important question. How are you going to live all of those years and be faithful? And the psalmist asks that question. And then he answers the question in that same verse, by taking heed according to your word. And so he tells us that the key, the solution for the young person is to focus on the word of God. It's to keep your eyes focused on the word of God, to tune your heart to the word of God, to love it, to meditate on it, to study it, to come back to it, to feed on it, and to make it an integral part of your life. Literally, as we've seen, to build your life on the framework of the word of God. And that's the solution. That's the key. Now, Psalm 119, as we noted, is what's called an alphabetic acrostic. It's a poem where each line of each stanza, and each stanza is eight verses long, each line begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the stanzas progress through all 22 letters in turn. And so in a way, Psalm 119 is kind of like the psalmist giving us an A to Z guide to the life of faith. And so he starts out, really, I think, by looking at it from the perspective of a young man who wants to follow God who wants to live in obedience to his word. And what happens to young men and young women? Well, they grow and become not so young men and women, right? And uh, we, we all are somewhere on that track, aren't we? And I just celebrated a birthday this week, so I'm maybe feeling that more than, more than usual, right, uh, at this point. But we're all somewhere on that track. And so what happens is as the psalmist progresses through the years of his life, he faces trials, he faces affliction. And some of that affliction and some of those trials are his own doing. Right? Some of that is his own foolishness, his own tendency to wander astray and to get himself away from the path of righteousness. Some of that is a result, though, of the hostility of others of the the sin of others toward the psalmist. But when he gets to the end of the psalm, it's almost as if now he's looking back on the years of his life. He's looking back from the perspective now of of a mature or seasoned saint who has spent a lifetime following the Lord and trusting his word. And so you kind of get this, these two perspectives in the psalm. It begins with the perspective of youth, and it ends kind of with the perspective of age. And it really is kind of this whole journey in between. Now, what kind of testimony would we expect to hear from a man or woman who has lived many years following God and studying, loving, and obeying his word? What, what would we expect to hear that person say to us? Well, we might expect to hear him speak of his long-standing commitment to the Lord and to his promises. He might talk about how when he was young, he decided that he was going to follow God with his life. And he set on this course and how he is many years later and that commitment is still 
holding true and he's still steady in his obedience to the Lord. You don't get to the end of a journey without committing not only to begin the journey, but to stay on the path and to endure along the way and to keep going when it gets difficult. And so here he is approaching the end and he he must certainly speak about the commitment that he's made along the way. That he's followed through. That's how he got where he is. But we also would maybe expect to hear the psalmist give testimony to his weakness, his frailty, his need of God's mercy and sustaining grace. These two themes have been woven together all throughout Psalm 119, all 176 verses. We've seen this already many times, how the psalmist goes back and forth between the two. His commitment to obey the Lord and his desperate need of God's grace in order to do it. John Golden Gay, in his commentary, states it very helpfully. He says, this illustrates the complementarity of divine and human action. I need Yahweh to incline my heart. I too have to incline my heart to Yahweh's declarations, not away from them. I need the Lord to incline my heart, but I have to incline my heart to His Word. Both things must be true. In many ways... Psalm 19 will end right where it began. The psalmist clinging to God for salvation and committing to keep his commands. Let's look at these last four stanzas together. We're going to be beginning in verse 145. As we see how the psalmist kind of walks through the the last course of the psalm and maybe, again, approaching the end of his life, looking at his life from this perspective and seeing uh, where this life of faith has taken him. Verse 145, the psalmist says, I cry out with my whole heart, hear me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I cry out to you, save me, and I will keep your testimonies. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. My eyes are awake throughout the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness, O Lord. Revive me according to your justice. They draw near who follow after wickedness. They are far from your law. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. I love the psalmist's commitment to prayer in this stanza. He cries out to Yahweh day and night. He rises early in the morning before the dawn, he says, to pray. And he even prays through the watches of the night, going without sleep because of the urgency of his situation, the weight that is heavy on his heart. Maybe you can relate to that. You've experienced that that sense of urgency in which you have to pray and you may lose sleep because you're so burdened with what's going on in the, the trial or the circumstance and you just cry out to the Lord. He's praying for deliverance. He's praying for life. And of course, that suggests that he's in a situation where death is a real possibility. We've noted throughout here that the psalmist has faced enemies and the enemies are hostile. He's, this is not just somebody who's having a bad day. This is somebody who has opponents, people who want to destroy him. He speaks of them in verse 150, as you read about it. He calls them the wicked or those who are uh, following after wickedness. They are far from God's law, he says. 
These are unbelievers. These are, are men and women who have turned away from the truth in order to follow after lies. They've rejected uh, whatever is morally good, whatever is morally upright. They don't want anything to do with that. Instead, what they're pursuing is whatever pleases them. Whatever they think is going to give them an edge, is going to give them success and influence. And so these aren't ignorant people. These aren't people who don't know any better. These are people who are self-seeking. They're self-serving. They're concerned with their own interests. The only thought they ever give to anyone else is whether that person can be of use to them somehow. That's all they ever think about. The world is full of people like this. They have no love for God, no love for His people. And if you determine that you're going to obey God and obey His word, you're going to find that people like this have no use for you. You're committed to God. You're committed to His word. You want to obey. They they aren't going to care about you. In fact, it's worse than that. They're going to be hostile to you. You, if you're committed to the Lord, you represent everything that they have rejected. They're not loyal to anyone but themselves. They're not interested in what is true, what is right, or what is good. They're only interested in what feels good to them, what brings them pleasure, what brings them happiness. And if you're truly committed to living according to God's word, they will be your opponents. The psalmist writes of that here. He has people who want to destroy him. You may experience that. I realize that as Christians in America, we don't face persecution, at least not so much from our government. But that doesn't mean that if we are committed to following the Lord, there aren't going to be people who don't like us, people who will try to to undermine what we're doing, people who will try to uh, oppose us and will stand against us. And part of the reason for that is that your very commitment to Christ, your very commitment to the Word of God is a repudiation of them of everything they stand for, of everything they think is important. The psalmist says in, in, this, in verse uh, 150, he says, they draw near to him, these wicked men. They draw near to him even as they're far from God's law. This is the, the challenging circumstance that he finds himself in. He's surrounded by men and women who hate God and hate everything that God stands for. But here's the problem. God isn't down here for them to throw punches at. Who is? The psalmist, the the believer, the person who's committed to Christ, the person who's committed to obey. You're the the convenient uh, punching bag, so to speak. And so what are they going to do? Well, they're going to attack. That's what they do. They attack the psalmist. They're crowding in around him. They're, They're gathering near to him with hostile intentions. But... I like the way Derek Kidner says it. He makes an observation about this in the next verse. He says, The threat is not glossed over. It is put in perspective by a bigger fact. In other words, the psalmist doesn't cover his eyes. He doesn't plug his ears and pretend that all these bad people are just going to go away. He doesn't just pretend that, no, that everybody likes him and everybody will get along. If he just kind of you know, go along, we'll get along and, and, and you know, it'll be okay. Now, he realizes that these are very real enemies and they're committed 
to their rebellion against God and their hostility. But he does something better than just pretend that they're not there. (laughs) He remembers the truth. Another writer put it this way, They are nigh to persecute and destroy me. Thou art nigh to help me. That's what the next verse says. Verse 151. The psalmist says, You are near. Verse 150, he said, They draw near. They're coming closer, but Lord, You, You are near to help me. The bigger fact that that, that, uh, Derek Kidner was referring to, the bigger fact that helps put it into perspective, whatever enemy we're facing is this, that God is closer. However close your enemies may come, God is closer to help you. He is here. He is near. He has placed Himself beside us, alongside us, close to us, His people. The psalmist here speaks of that. Even in the the midst of this distressing situation, his testimony, verse 151, you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. In other words, what God says is trustworthy. He is faithful. The psalmist says in, in in the last verse of the stanza that this is something he learned a long time ago. He says, concerning your testimonies, I have known of old... Uh, it's actually kind of a, uh, a... He's connecting back with a couple of verses earlier in, the, uh, earlier in the stanza where he spoke about rising before the dawn, talking about before that which is before that which is before. And now he goes, before the before. Like, that was earlier when I was praying, but before that, go back further in the past. I've known this. He's referring here in this verse to something that he learned a long time ago. He's saying, I learned a long time ago that your word, your testimonies, your commandments are true and firmly established. Sometimes the old lessons are still the best ones. Things that we learn when we first become a Christian can still give us hope and confidence many years later. Maybe they're even better. Because we've had a chance to see God prove Himself faithful time after time. The psalmist says, listen, I I learned this lesson a long time ago and I, I committed to build my life on this principle that God's Word is true. And now, many years later, you know what? It's still true. My enemies are near, but Lord, You're closer than them. No matter how get close they get to me, no matter how, uh, how much it seems like I, I'm surrounded, Lord, you are near. And I can trust you. And the psalmist expresses his confidence in the Lord. I, I just love this, the, 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 the hope and the faith that he has here, the trust that he has in the Lord. Because he's found that God is near. Now, in the next stanza, he continues to pray. And, and he speaks even more about the, the great gulf that is kind of fixed between the two groups, those who follow God's word and those who reject it. Look what he says in verse 153. Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. 
Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. Remive me according to your judgments. Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. You know, one of the things that I think we don't like to think about is the stark contrast between the ends of the righteous and the wicked. I said that Psalm 119 parallels Psalm 1. Psalm 1 talks about this subject. What is the end of the righteous and the end of the wicked? Here's what Psalm 1 says. Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Every man, every woman, every child who rejects God's word and by doing so rejects God, everyone will perish. That's what he says. This is the final end of all those who refuse to submit to the way of truth. Everyone who rejects the word of God, everyone who refuses it, everyone who turns away from it will perish. But this isn't just God being vindictive, God being harsh. Why will they perish? Well, because they've cut themselves off from any hope of salvation. Because salvation comes only one way, by believing the word of God. And the psalmist speaks about this very clearly in this stanza. He he characterizes it this way, redemption. He speaks about redemption and revival in verse 154. And giving of life, that's what revival means, giving life. And, and, And how does he say redemption and revival come? According to your word, he says. Salvation and life are directly connected to the word of God. And they're far from the wicked. That's what he said in the next verse. Salvation is far from the wicked. Why? Why is salvation far? Why is it separated? Why is it removed from the wicked? Because they do not seek Yahweh's statutes. Anyone who refuses to hear and obey God's word has placed themselves far from salvation. It's not God who's cut them off and said, I don't want anything to do with you. It's them. They have rejected him by rejecting his truth. That's what happens. Because they have cut themselves off, they have put themselves far away, it is inaccessible to them. They can't have salvation. Because they won't have salvation. This is the real issue here. They can't be saved because they won't be saved. They refuse it. Why? Because they don't want God's word. They don't want to submit to the truth. That's the problem. To turn away from God and his word is to consign yourself to hell. Of course, many people today reject this idea. They assume this makes God unloving. He's some sort of ogre, you know. He doesn't love them because if he loved them, he would save them. He would give them all this that they want in spite of the fact that they refuse the means by which God has ordained salvation to come. Now, how do, we re- how do we respond to that? Well, notice what the psalmist says in verse 156. So right after he said, the wicked are far from salvation, 
He says this in verse 156. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. The Lord is not unjust. He is not unloving. In fact, His tender mercies, His compassions are great. He is full of compassion. He is full of mercy. How do I know that? Because His compassion is what moves Him to offer life to those who will seek Him according to His Word. That's what He's saying here. Revive me according to your judgments. Why? Because your great... Your tender mercies are great. Lord, you are so compassionate. The wicked have cut themselves off. They've separated themselves from salvation. But Lord, you are compassionate. You offer life and salvation if we just come to you according to your word. Now, this is one of those things that we run into a lot of times because we're kind of silly creatures. And we wish that things were different than they are. Anybody ever had that? You wish that Wisconsin winter included mild temperatures and sunny days? Anybody there? Okay. Right? You wish that if you got the flu, you felt stronger and more energetic than ever? That's not really how that works, though, is it? Right? Wishing something is true, wishing things are different than they are, doesn't actually accomplish any change in the circumstances, does it? Wisconsin winter is still Wisconsin winter. And the flu still makes you feel terrible and weakens you. And it can kill you. Well, we can wish that salvation could come through some other means. We could wish that we could be saved by doing good works, by being good moral people and just being good to our neighbors, taking care of our family, generally trying to be decent folks. We could wish that salvation came by, by, by religious efforts, going to church or, or getting baptized, saying a prayer or giving money in an offering. I, we actually don't want, that's not the way we want to get saved because most of us want to keep our money. But another thing. But again, wishing that things were different than they are doesn't change the reality, does it? So we can wish that salvation came through some other means, but God has ordained a means by which men and women can, can be and must be saved. And it's only one way. It's only by believing God's Word, by trusting what He says. God's Word brings salvation. We have to believe it. That's what the psalmist says in verse 154. Revive me according to your word. Verse 156, according to your judgments, which is another term that's used to describe the scriptures. And most importantly, verse 159, according to your loving kindness. The word loving kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. We've mentioned that numerous times. Become familiar with it in our study of the Psalms. The only way to be saved is through the faithfulness of God. That's the, that's the idea behind that term has said. His loving kindness. His faithfulness to keep His word. That's how you and I can be saved because God keeps His promises. That's it. There's no other way. We must come to believe what He says in His word if we're going to be saved. Life comes from the author of life. 
Life does not come from within ourselves. We must go to Him. We must seek Him to have life, to have salvation, to have hope. And that's the psalmist's testimony over and over and over again. Lord, revive me according to Your Word. Lord, according to Your judgments, give me life. Lord, according to Your faithfulness, give me life. We don't get to come to God and say, I want life, but I'm going to have it on my terms. I want salvation, but I'm going to get it my way. That's not how it works. And you can wish it's different all you want, but it won't change anything. But I love how the psalmist closes this stanza, verse 160. The entirety of your word. Uh, that The expression that he uses there is kind of an interesting expression. Um, it, it means the sum, the total, everything added up. Your word in total, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. God's word can be trusted. God's word is absolutely certain and sure. And that's how you know you can be saved. Because God's word teaches us how we can be saved. God's word tells us about Jesus Christ who came and died for our sins and rose again from the dead that we might be saved. It's through the word of God and believing him and his word that we can be saved. But I don't want to give the wrong impression here because the psalmist uses this word salvation, revive, redeem. He speaks these kind of terms. And I think he's probably using these terms in a slightly different way than we usually use them. Most of the time, as Christians, when we talk about being saved or salvation, we're thinking in terms of being saved from our sins, right? Being saved from an eternity in hell because of our sins. But the psalmist, when he speaks of salvation and revival, is mostly thinking in terms of the immediate circumstance that he's facing. He's usually thinking in terms of God intervene in my life to demonstrate the reality of your power and your life. Give me salvation from the threat that I'm facing. Now, this is not an either-or thing. And so as Christians, we understand, we need to understand that we are eternally saved from sin and from hell and from death because we believe God and His Word. At the same time, it's also true that as Christians, we must live by faith in the Word of God each and every day. It's, It's believing God and His Word that allows us to face the trials of life and to see God working in our life to, to, to help us, to guide us, to save us and deliver us from the circumstances that we find ourselves in, from the afflictions that we, that we endure. By His presence. And so, as one writer put it, because we are redeemed by the Word, live by the Word, and trust in the promises of the Word, we may expect the Lord to vindicate us when the world opposes and oppresses. In other words, we have a reason, we have a right to expect that when, when the world is opposing us, when the world is against us because we love God and we love His Word, we have a right to expect God to do something about that. We have a right to expect God to, to intervene in our lives because we're His children. We belong to Him. And so, of course, that's why we pray, right? We ask God to, to immediately intervene, don't we? Lord, 
Uh, there's a sickness. Lord, there's a need. Lord, there's a struggle. Lord, there's a problem. Lord, there's a conflict. Lord, do something about this. Please heal and give strength and, and guide us and, and help us. And don't we pray for that? Do you pray for that? You should. We ought to pray constantly for God's grace and help and intervention in our lives immediately. But here's the thing. As, as, as Christians, we know that even if it doesn't happen now, it's going to happen ultimately in eternity. Because whether he chooses to deliver us from the immediate trial or not, someday we will be delivered from all of them, won't we? We have that confidence. And so I think it's not an either or. The psalmist here is is, is clearly focusing very much on his immediate circumstances and the trials he's facing. But there's also a sense in which we must, in the same way, trust the Lord not just for the immediate and the day-to-day, but also for eternity. So both things are true, and the psalmist is doing that, and we ought to as well. The Word of God is the believer's hope. Is it your hope? Is God's Word your consolation? Do you meditate on the Scriptures in order to find peace and comfort when trials come? By the way, if you're like me, your answer is probably... Yes and no, right? Some days and other days I struggle to meditate on the Word of God, to find comfort there. That's why we're learning and growing. That's why we're seeking to follow the Lord. But the psalmist gives a testimony of this, that the Word of God is his hope and his comfort in the next stanza. Look at what he says in verse 161. Princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your Word. I rejoice at your Word as one who finds great treasure. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I hope for your salvation and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. You know, his enemies have not gone away. He's prayed and prayed and prayed all throughout this psalm for deliverance, for salvation, for rescue. He's prayed for God to deal with these enemies. He's he's separated himself from them, and and yet they haven't gone away. Here he is still saying, the the princes are plotting against me. The the influential and powerful people are still uh, working together to try to destroy me. But the interesting thing in this stanza is after that first line, he doesn't mention them again. He doesn't focus on them anymore. After the first line, what he speaks of is this. He talks about the awe that the Word of God inspires in his heart. He talks about the joy that he has in discovering it. He talks about the praise that constantly flows from his lips. Seven times a day, he says. talks of the peace and the confidence that he has when he thinks of the Word of God. He talks about his hope of salvation. These are the things that occupy his heart and his mind. Oh, the enemies haven't gone away. The trial is still there. The difficulties and the affliction are still there. But his focus is all on these blessings. Things that, as a believer... The believer, he has learned to to trust in the Lord and he experiences these wonderful gifts. 
He's, he's learned to depend on the Lord, to keep his eyes and his heart focused on the scriptures, not on his enemies, not on the opposition, not on the threats, not on the affliction. He's not stressed out. He's not anxious. He's not depressed. What is he? He's hopeful. And he's at peace. How could this be? What has happened that has taken him from this trial and affliction and the threat and the danger, and instead of, of him being, being uh, stressed out and anxious and depressed, what, what has produced this hope and peace? Well, again, it's the Word of God which transforms him. The Word of God has changed his heart, and his testimony is that he has loved it, that he loves God's Word. And it has had a powerful impact. Of course, the internal impact, as I already mentioned here, he speaks of his hope and his peace. That's something God has done in his heart. God has given him hope and peace inside, even while the external circumstances are very troubling still. But the internal transformation is, goes beyond just what happens within him. It extends to his life. There's a couple of things that he says here that help us to see how God has changed him, how the word of God and his love for it has transformed him. He says, um, you know, it speaks about his, his attitude toward the wicked and toward those who are disobedient. Remember, there was a time when the psalmist said that he followed them, that he went astray with them, right? He followed that crowd that was going away from God. So here is the psalmist Is he looking at them, the unbelievers, the disobedient? Is he looking at them and thinking, man, their lives look good. I wish I could be like them. I wish I could have what they have. Is he he envious of them? No, look at what he says in verse 163. I hate and abhor lying. He he hates it. He hates their dishonesty and their deceitful ways. He abhors it. It, it's, It's reprehensible to him. And I would submit to you that when we meditate regularly on the Scriptures, when we love the Scriptures, the Word of God, our sinful desires are replaced by a loathing for that which is false. The Word of God is transformative to our desires. Instead of looking at those those unbelievers and the wicked who rebel against God and thinking, man, they... They have a lot of stuff I wish I could have and, 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 and wishing we could be like them. We begin to see the deceitfulness. We begin to see the falseness. We begin to see the corruption of it and, and our hearts are turned away from it. The psalmist says, I don't, I, don't, I don't look at them and think that I wish I could be like them. In fact, instead of loving sin and loving the sins of those around us, we begin to hate it and ultimately to reject it and refuse to walk in it. This is the transformative work of the Word of God in our life. And the psalmist here gives testimony to that. But the other, the other kind of side of the coin, if you will, not only does he hate the lying ways and the false ways of the wicked, but he speaks about his praise for the Lord's righteous judgments, his, his decrees of right and wrong. He says that in verse 164. 
When we love God's word, we don't resist it. Instead, because we love the word of God, we we come to the word of God and we find in it the truth about what is right and what is wrong. God says this is right. God says this is wrong. And we, instead of resisting that, we embrace it. We see God's will when we come to his word, how he wants us to live. And we embrace our duty to obey the word of God. We embrace the truth of what is right and what is wrong. And the psalmist gives testimony in verse 165, the great peace that results from that. There is great peace. There's great confidence that comes when we begin to obey the word of God and when we begin to see and love the word of God and see the will of God. What does God want in our life? How does he want us to live? And then we begin to follow that path. And the the result here, he says, is great peace. He says, nothing causes them to stumble in verse 165. Now, elsewhere he had talked about you know, verse 105, we think about the word of God, which is a light, uh, you know, for his feet and a lamp for his path. Um, we talked about how that the word of God gives guidance. That's not really what he's thinking about here. When he says stumble here, he's referring to not just kind of tripping over an obstacle. He's referring to uh, falling away stumbling so as to be irreparably uh, damaged, beyond recovery. So basically what the psalmist is telling us is this, his own experience in loving the word of God. That it has caused him to walk in such a way that he is preserved from spiritual ruin. He can walk on the path following God and know that he is not going to shipwreck his life. Not because he's such a great guy, not because he's such a morally upstanding person, but because he loves the Word of God. And this is what the Word of God is doing in his life. It's giving him peace. It's causing him to walk in obedience and have this great hope in the Lord. And again, this is, I believe, the psalmist's testimony as he is as he is looking at it from the, the end of his life and saying, God has proven himself faithful in his word as I've followed it. I have this great confidence and peace. And finally, we come to the last stanza of the psalm. Verse 169. And this stanza, by the way, in, in my opinion, is the most surprising. It's the most unexpected. Look at what the psalmist says. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips shall utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. Let your hand become my help, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live, and it shall praise you, and let your judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant for I do not forget your commandments. Doesn't this tone of this stanza seem a bit shocking? 
Shouldn't we expect somebody who's lived his entire life following God and his word to be a little bit more confident as he approaches the end? Why does he pray for his cries to be heard in heaven? Why does he pray for Yahweh's hand to be his help? Why does he still long for salvation in life? Hasn't he figured out yet how to live and please God? After all these years, hasn't he kind of solved the problems of walking in obedience to the Lord and staying in the path of righteousness? Well, first of all, if he did, then I would say he probably wouldn't be much help to any of us. Have any of you figured all these things out yet? Don't raise your hand. You weren't going to anyways, I know. Any of you gotten to the point where you don't need to ask the Lord to show you mercy and grace? Any of you gotten to the point where you don't need to ask Him to hear your prayers and answer them? Any of you gotten to the point where you don't need to ask Him to come near and be your help and your strength? I don't think so. Me neither. Fact is that even at the end of the psalm and even at the end of his life, the psalmist knows and understands more than anything his need is for God's grace to preserve. Maybe even better than he did at the beginning of the psalm. Maybe even better, and this is true, as, as we are starting out as Christians on our Christian walk and committing to follow the Lord, I don't think it's really possible for us to understand just how much we need God's grace. But as the years go by and we begin to experience life and the challenges and we begin to experience God's faithfulness and we begin to love His Word and really to, 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 to grow, we become more and more aware of just how desperately we need Him. Just how much we need His grace, don't we? I mean, the psalmist here shares some incredible testimony. On one hand, God has revealed himself to us in his word. He's given precious promises, hasn't he? Promises that cause us to trust in him and hope in him. The the psalmist here, as he, in the first few verses, from verse 169 to verse 172, the first half of the stanza, he is praying for grace, right? He's praying that God would hear him. He's praying that God would, would, would answer him. But in every one of these verses, he's talking about how it's God's revelation and his word that causes him to pray this way. Right? According to your word. According to your word. Teach me your statutes. All your commandments are righteousness. Everything is God's word. God, hear me. God, listen to me. God, respond to me because of your word. Right? He's been inspired because God has spoken through his word. That leads him to to depend on the Lord. And, And of course, this is our experience as well. We read the Bible. We read the Scriptures. And as we read the Word of God, we become to know Him. And as we come to know Him, that causes us to pray, to seek His help, to seek His salvation, to seek His deliverance, to seek His strength, His comfort, His presence. And so if all we had was the Word of God, we would have sufficient reason to seek the Lord. Sufficient reason to pray and to depend on Him. His Word tells us to. It promises these things. But we're understand that God reveals Himself to us not just in His Word. He also reveals Himself to us in the middle of our trials. 
I'm not saying that you're going to get visions from heaven. Okay? I'm not saying you're going to hear voices. I hope you don't hear voices. It's not God if you do. But God reveals himself to us in our trials. How? By coming near to us. By, by inserting himself into our trials. By overruling the adversity that we go through. By his gracious providence. I mean, we don't have time. I wish we had time to take testimonies. How many of you could share testimony of something, some way that God has intervened in, in, a, in a, a trial and affliction in your life and has proven himself to be present, strong, gracious, kind, and good to you? Yeah. All of us can do that. Because God reveals himself to us this way. He comes to us in the middle of our trials. He meets with us. He comes and he comes close to us and he upholds us and gives us strength. And so the psalmist prays, yes, in light of the promises of the word, he knows the scriptures promise this, but he also prays for God to immediately come and intervene. God, and that's what he gets to in, in verse 173. Let your hand become my help. I long for your salvation. Let my soul live. He's, he's saying, Lord, I know your word promises this. Your word speaks about this, but I want to see it come in my life and show me your faithfulness. Show me your goodness. So he prays and he seeks God, God's involvement. And this stanza, so again, this stanza really shows us this kind of dual aspect, the, the, the trusting in the word of God and walking by faith. Even after a lifetime of experience, the psalmist continues in the same way to love the word of God, to trust in it, and then to cry out to the Lord to show himself to be very real. But I love the last verse. We come to the last verse and everything kind of gets, get, just points like an arrow to this last verse of the psalm. The psalmist speaks here of his complete dependence on God's mercy and grace. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. This verse reminds me a lot of the words of the grieving father to Jesus in Mark chapter 9 when he says, I believe help my unbelief. There's the confession of faith, but there's also the recognition of need, desperate need for God's grace. Psalm 119 reminds us that we never outgrow our need of the Lord. We never get past our human tendency to wander astray like lost sheep. We never get to the point where we've got it all figured out And we don't have to watch over ourselves and take care. In fact, the older we get, the more we love God, the more we love His Word. What actually happens is we become more aware of our weakness. Instead of walking confidently and boldly, sometimes in our youthfulness we are bold when we should be cautious. What do we do? We pray more urgently for God's grace. True spiritual maturity is not the absence of sin. It's actually a greater awareness of our sin and a greater brokenness over it. We turn to the Lord more quickly. We pray that He would seek us out when we've gone astray, just as the psalmist is doing, and bring us back into fellowship. 
If we wanted to sum up the life of faith, then I think from Psalm 119, we could say it this way. It's not a greater commitment to obey God and keep His Word. It's not working harder, trying harder. It's an ever-increasing awareness of our need of grace and a growing dependence on His Word. Let's pray for His grace and mercy together today. Father, You are so good. Even in our weakness, our frailty, our stubbornness, our foolishness, we have many times over earned Your wrath and Your judgment and Your condemnation. But Your mercy is so great. Your forgiveness beyond what we can Imagine and comprehend your grace to pour out your your blessings on us in abundance. Words fail to, to describe these things. And as we continue in our Christian lives, we get even more aware of how little we can do to please you, of how often we fail, of how often we get it wrong. Thank you for the reminder from Psalm 119 of the need for your grace, that we would trust you. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word today and each and every day to transform us, to shape us, to restore us into fellowship when we've sinned, to give us peace and hope and confidence even in the face of trial and difficulty. to bring us to our knees in prayer as we depend on you each day. Lord, we thank you for the word of God that does this great work in us. Word of God that is your powerful revelation by which we come to know you and are transformed into the image of your Son. Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who's never trusted in Christ, who's never begun this life of faith, that they would see the foolishness of continuing in their own path. That rebellion leads only to condemnation. But there's mercy and there's hope to all who repent. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.